0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talked to Brian Parks, the founder and managing director of Bigfoot Capital, a company that specializes in lending growth capital to B2B software companies. Now, going out to raise money for your startup can be overwhelming especially if it's the first time that you're doing it. As a founder, you have a business to run, and if you're not careful, fundraising can easily consume all your time. Brian has an interesting background. He was an investment banker for several years. He's raised money as a startup founder himself, and now he's investing in early-stage SaaS companies and recently raised $30 million for Bigfoot Capital. So he has a unique perspective on fundraising, and I thought it would be helpful to have him share his insights on how founders of SaaS companies that are looking to raise money can increase their chances of success. In this episode, we're going to talk about the five mistakes that startup founders make when it comes to fundraising, how you can avoid making those same mistakes, and we'll share some actionable steps to help you raise capital with more confidence. So I hope you enjoy it. Visit thesasToolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock faster growth for your SaaS business. That's thesasToolkit.com. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, tell us about Bigfoot Capital. What what do you do? Who do you help? What's the business you're in? We are in a very
1: simple business. I'm happy to say we we provide capital to B2B software companies, predominantly SaaS companies, in a non dilutive format, uh, which is also known as debt. So we've been uh, doing that since 2017, really you know, started Bigfoot after having been an operator myself, having raised equity for a company I started and other companies I was involved with. Knew a bunch of folks who had done the same. And then that was the genesis was, well, I think there should be another way to fund these companies than, than just equity angel or venture or you have no option but to bootstrap. So that was the thesis. I'm not going to say we came up with the thesis, the only people out in the world to do it, but we started executing it uh, in two thousand and seventeen, and been having a great time doing it since, we've funded about thirty five companies. We've been able to play a part in a lot of good outcomes for those companies, equity raises, sales of the business, other things of that nature. We're just growing the company in a sustainable format. So that's what we do. Non-dilutive capital to b two b software.
0: What type of b two b companies do you look at? What's the main criteria that you're interested in?
1: It, it's broad, so say b two b software. You know, predominantly SaaS, which in and of itself is very broad. We'll also look at some other business models, marketplace and more transactional oriented, even some tech enabled services businesses. But for us, it's um, from a fundamentals or quantitative standpoint, three buckets that we think about revenue scale and revenue quality for us we will go as early as a million, million and a half ARR up to 10. Our sweet spot is generally two, two and a half to six, putting... $500 Five hundred to two and a half million dollars into those companies, so growth rounds as I think of them, not drip feeding you know, small amounts of capital. So revenue scale, revenue quality, the operating metrics and efficiency really matter to us. And then it's really how do we align with where they're trying to get? Can we meet them where they are? Are they at the right stage? Can we provide them with enough capital in a reasonable format for where they're trying to go next in their growth stage over the next you know couple of years? So that's what it's really all about. You're somewhat sector agnostic. You fund enterprise software companies, SD-oriented, verticalized, horizontal, all different sorts of product applications in the markets. Really across the country. So pretty broad.
0: <laughs> okay, great. So today we're going to talk about five common capital raising mistakes that you've seen founders make. And then we're also going to talk about how you can avoid making those mistakes. You and I talked about these ideas a little while before we started recording this episode. And th- this is something that you've written about as well. So is this just based on your experience in terms of what you've seen happen repeatedly with different founders? Yeah, I mean it's based on my own
1: experience, right? So I've raised money, as I mentioned, not for Bigfoot. You have to have money to put into companies and it's not
0: unfortunately all
1: mine. So I think I think I started writing this content. Actually I, I, I did this content back in probably like twenty seventeen for a, a microconf talk and then I refreshed it after I raised you know $30 million for Bigfoot uh, in 2020 and 2021, actually, 2019 into 2021 took about 15 months. And, you know, so my experiences there, my experiences prior to that, raising money for Brandfolder, a company I started back in the day about a decade ago. And then, so those are my experiences. And then it's really, I talk with a bunch of people that are raising money all the time, or think they're raising money, or think they should be raising money. From us or others, so it's a it's a kind of collation of my experience and directly and then indirectly through the conversations.
0: All right. So the first mistake is what you call conducting the casual raise. Tell tell me what you mean by that? By that,
1: yeah. So I have a not very good saying that casualization is not capitalization, and what I mean by that is you're either raising or you're not. So raising capital is a full blown effort that can take some time. I mean. Depends on what kind of capital you're raising. But generally speaking, it's going to take some time, focus, effort from yourself and possibly folks on your team. So if you're not really committed to that and ready for it, I say basically put it out. You know, put it out to pasture, Put it to the side. Don't let it distract you and your team because you got other stuff to, to think about and work on. If you're not able to do that and you're kind of, kind of raising, I think you're doing yourself a disservice and probably not going to be all that successful to driving an outcome. So that's what I mean. And I think we can step into that in a little more detail here uh, of what that actually looks like.
0: Yeah. So, so one, one clarification here is that when you say you're either raising or you're not, how, how do you think about... I, I mean, founders shouldn't not think about fundraising until they're like, they desperately need money. So there's probably some prep they need to be doing. Where does that fit into what, what you're talking about here?
1: Yeah. Really good point. Maybe I'll like segment it between prep, education, discovery being one thing, which is super important, and then go to market. So I think before you go to market, you should have done some prep, education, and discovery. Things like, so when you go to market, you're strategic, and you're focused, and you're clear, and you're not casual. And then you're way more prone to being casual if you haven't done some um, uh, upfront work. So, so point well taken. That That prep, discovery, education is really the building of the plan that you can execute on when you go to market so understanding why you're raising capital how much capital are you raising you have a plan to put that capital to work what does that look like that probably bleeds into having a a projection model of hiring people and growing revenue doing marketing and things like that that you don't want to show up to and go to market and be asked for and not have anything to show because it just makes you look bad so I think having some conversations with other founders and people that allocate capital, whoever they may be, you know, is worthwhile to learn and discover. Much as you would do for any other aspect of your business, I hope. If it's product, sales, and marketing, what have you. You have to learn before you do. Learn and prep before you do.
0: Yeah. So what, is, what are some of the hallmarks that you see of founders who sort of are casually thinking about fundraising?
1: So there's, there's three that jump into my mind. And this is my viewpoint as a, on the receiving end of someone who is seemingly going out to raise capital. So the first one is you're unprepared. (laughs) So like we were just saying, get prepared. That means you don't have your stuff in order. You haven't been doing your homework. And I think that manifests in the fact that like, you don't have organized materials. If I ask you for something, you can't provide it, or it takes way too long. I think my goal always when I'm in when I'm raising money, which I have to do for Bigfoot with some regularity, is to be the most prepared, quickest to respond person that, that my counterparty interacts with. I probably have many people to them coming to them for money. There's no reason I shouldn't be the best prepared and fastest. I may not have the best business. I may not have the most experience. I may not, may not have whatever, but I should always have the best preparation. So, and I think a lot of that comes from my investment banking background, right? I just drilled into you. I recognize a lot of people don't have that background. Probably good enough, smart enough just to prep yourself. So it can be evident that you're unprepared to so get prepared. Like I said, you're too slow. Uh, common thing time kills deals, right? Time also erodes uh, trust and confidence. So just be fast. I, I never want to be the one. In when I'm raising money or when we're providing capital, slowing down the process. It's always be on the front foot, be proactive. My job on both sides of, of the table of raising and deploying capital is to drive timelines, get people off the fence, get people to yes or no, get them to take the next step. And you, you really have to focus, be organized and hustle to, to make that happen. You can't just be passive and, oh, okay, yeah, you maybe asked for that. Maybe I'll get it to you. Oh, I got pulled in this other direction. Okay, is this actually important to you? Is this how you treat the partners and relationships in your company holistically? Okay, now I'm doubting your operational acumen. Right? I think the last one is so that's being slow. Last one is just too passive. If we've started to build some sort of relationship at the very earliest stages, maybe I had a good conversation, maybe I read something you wrote, what have you. Um, I'm looking to be engaged, right? Until I'm not, right? So. Engage me and qualify me. And even don't feel afraid to try to put me to work for you. That kind of shows me that you're actually doing something here and in the driver's seat.
0: Most what do you mean by that? Like put you to work? Ask me to look at
1: a model you've built. Ask me to look at a deck. Infinite amounts of time, but I've got 5 to 10, 15 minutes, what have you, to, to look at something specific and scoped. Maybe the, after we hop off, off a call for the first time, don't ask me for an intro. Maybe. Or I don't know. But ask me to do something <laughs> practical that can help you in your efforts and help you improve what you're using as you go to market. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. So one of the things you said was also about being the driver's seat and make sure that you're you're pushing towards an outcome. And th- that reminded me of something that another founder had once uh, said to me was like, you keep following up until you get a yes or a no. But I think people are still reluctant to do that because they're going to just come across as annoying with investors. So so now we're talking to investors. Like, how, how do you perceive that when people are uh, constantly uh, sending you follow ups?
1: I'm fine with it. I mean, I do it all the time. So I'm probably that annoying person, right? Because <laughs> I'm trying to get to yes or no. To both, both to you know, again, people and groups I'm trying to raise money from, and to companies I'm trying to get capital into. It's just kind of like, hey, are we doing this? Are we not doing this? Like, are we taking a next step? Are you interested? Okay, it's six months out. Is there anything I can do for you? It's just, it's, it's just the mode of operating. And I think it applies more broadly beyond just raising capital as well. And maybe it's in your DNA or maybe you can just teach yourself to do it and realize the benefits and importance of, kind of operating that way. I don't know, I wouldn't be worried. It, it's synonymous to I, I still have fears about this. Oh my gosh, are am sending out too many emails? Are we, you know, to our list? And it's like, no, no, <laughs> you know? And to, people can unsubscribe. Anyone can tell me, hey dude, like you're pushing too hard. And a lot right. of people don't tell you that. And <laughs> you actually end up getting stuff done.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's good stuff. Okay, so and the second mistake is what you say, call shooting from the hip. Mm-hmm. What's all that about?
1: It's about not having a process. So I think it's, uh, you got to have a process. I mean, again, this applies to a bunch of stuff beyond raising capital, but I think it, it's definitely important to run a very streamlined, effective, organized process as you, as you go through this. Because it is a process, right? It does take time oftentimes, more time than you would expect. So you don't have a process. You're just, I don't know, you're doing yourself a disservice, right? Shooting from the hip and, and, and disorganized. And you're not able to shepherd a group of potential capital partners, whatever, whatever else, through a process. You you do want to let your counterparties know that you are running a process. One, they're not the only game in town. Two, this is not just stretching out for infinity, right? There are yeah. things to adhere to here.
0: So you you actually wrote about a, an eight-stage process to think about when raising capital so why don't we go through that because i think there's some useful guidance there for for a lot of founders who I, i i see this in terms of people kind of know what to do, but there's there's often a lack of process. And so they do look like they're running around a little bit like headless chickens. Let's talk this through because I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. So eight steps. Let's, let's just go through them quickly. Yeah. So
1: first one's discover, which is basically researching and building your list, right? So this is the prep work you can do that we talked about earlier before you go to market growing up like on air quotes. And it's really important to do. A lot of capital providers out there, again, of different types, right? Angel venture, private equity, um, lenders, banks, ed- family offices, all different sorts of folks that invest in all sorts of different types of things for various reasons and with various expectations. It is your job as the one conducting the capital raise to figure that stuff out, which doesn't just happen. <laughs> so it's an exercise of, of studying and working to understand okay, I'm not looking to have a list of 1,000, I'm looking to have a list of maybe 50 though, or maybe it's fewer that I can reach out to in a relevant way and in a an referenceable way. And obviously, you know, the concept of getting warm intros, you know, really cultivate and curate a list it, it is really the the first place to start. Okay. And so if you're in right. a spreadsheet's totally fine, right? I use a spreadsheet. We have CRM like don't over engineer it we'll get to stuff like that later on.
0: Okay, great. So step one, discover. Step two is equal acquire.
1: Yeah. So you're outreaching now. So hopefully you've done done your homework and now you're in a spot to go out and outreach with some really with some confidence right and some like not fluff and something that's very clear when you're reaching out to someone as to why who you are and how you got there so this can be templatized emails which' I've written a short ebook on this which we can give the link to afterwards that literally has some screenshots of things I've used. If you're going to be sending out a lot of these emails, templatize it. Build a system into your process. Ask for warm intros. Of course, if you're asking for a warm intro, it's always helpful to say, Oh, here's a forwardable email. Have that ready. It's not that hard to do. I and mean, as you write them, you refine your thinking. And as people receive the forwardable email, they have questions around them which further refine your thinking and make your messaging better. So, I mean, you're basically doing outbound. You are doing
0: outbound. Okay. So that's uh, step two, step three, activate and engage.
1: Yeah, this is where you get annoying. A dog with a bone, right? Follow up follow up follow up again in your spreadsheet CRM, whatever you have. This is where you're really this in the next stage. Yes or no? If I've got a spreadsheet, I'm gonna use some conditional formatting and have a column of status. And if it's you know, yes in the ether <laughs> or, or no. Yes is green, no is red, yellow is in the ether. I want green and red. I want to minimize the amount that I have in yellow. So this is what you're doing here, right? You can get a reply to your email. Can you share them some information? They didn't ask for it. Can you get them to have an ask of you? Can you get a meeting in motion? Can you get them to tell you it's a screw off, right? It's, that's what you're doing here to really, it's a funnel, right? You reached out to 50 or a hundred. Now you're trying to activate some portion of those. And then you're ultimately trying to get results from some portion of those. So.
0: And I think this is the part that uh, a lot of people struggle with, because for for you know some of the reasons we talked about earlier. But yeah, I'd, I'd go back to that that idea of like you just said is like keep going until you get a yes or a no, and you can avoid being annoying by actually providing some value in those follow up emails or or sharing useful information or asking for something very practical that can be done in a few minutes. So there are a lot of different ways that, that you can do this. But if you if you believe in your idea, you also got to have the persistence to follow through.
1: Sure. Right. And, and I think it's also where you're saying, Hey, this is important to me in my business. This isn't just some like casual effort. Back to that word casual that I'm conducting. Like, This is a core thing to my business at this point in time. So treat it as such, counterparty. As a counterparty, how is it going to be... A, Important to me if I don't think it's important to you.
0: Okay, great. So we covered two steps there. So three was like the activate, engage, and the follow ups. And then step four is the gather results, which is what we talked about. Get a red or a green. You don't want yellows.
1: Yeah, that's right. And a result, generally in capital arrays, is a it's something tangible, yeah. a term sheet, let's just say. So if at the end of that gather results, you want some term sheets, right? Something that you can share with advisors, digest with your team, your CFO, whomever, and then use to select which is the next thing pick your horse so you've gone through this whole thing now it's time to to select one and and hopefully not mess that up so i mean it's really as simple as that right select the offer that you want to go with the partner the offer you can be having multiple negotiations but don't let that phase drag out forever because you'll exhaust people you're probably trying to over optimize after a certain point and people can just walk folks will walk away. They may lose excitement. And they may think, oh my gosh, if this is this painful to work with this person at this point. How's it going to be when we're actually partnered up? Negotiating is fine, but at some point, you got to sign.
0: <laughs> so here's a question I had from a founder a couple of weeks ago who who was in a pretty good situation that they had multiple investors interested and they had they had term sheets, I think, from what I understand. And they the question really was like, I've got different offers, and, and how do I get everybody, all these investors on the same page, on the same term, and so on. And maybe we can talk about that a bit later. But the, the question for me was, aside from the terms, wh- who do you want to work with? Who's the best fit for you here? So when you're thinking about picking the horse, my question for you is, like, how important is the offer and how important is the investor fit?
1: Yeah, great question. To me to me, and to Bigfoot, investor fit is very important. To some folks who just money is green and fine I just want money, it's not as important. So you have to understand, is this transactional or is it something more than that? Yeah, I tend to think it's very important because you're, unless it's really short-term capital, you're getting in the bed with someone for a period of time. And if it's an equity investor, it can be perpetuity in effect. With us, it's probably a couple of few years, but that's a long time. And wanna be necessarily working with someone who you don't like personally, you don't believe can bring any value, understands what you're up to or has been in your seat. There's there's a lot of consideration there beyond just what's on the piece of paper from a right. economics or, or term standpoint.
0: You pick them because the deal was a little better. The offer was a little better, but now you're stuck with them for Yeah, and look, and more. that's really
1: that can happen, right? Like it's fine. I mean, if someone may really like me, may like you may really believe we can do something for your company, but yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, we don't always win. And if we can go so far and if someone goes wildly farther than us, and from an economic standpoint, you you want that? Like, I get it. <laughs> Let me just add one thing there, Omer, actually beyond the fit is I think transparency helps a lot throughout this process. So I think if you're receiving term sheets, don't necessarily just go into some, don't go AWOL for two weeks so, you know and leave whoever gave you those term sheets just hanging out there. Even if you're doing work in the back end, like models, analyzing, what have you, engage that group. Be transparent without it maybe under some confidentiality with certain folks. Like, respect that, but put it out there and, and show people. Show me, show whomever, and then we can really collaborate, which further builds kind of relationship and trust. At the end of the day, we may or may not get there, and that's okay, but I think make it collaborative and be transparent.
0: Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupas is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces, and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupas has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash BUPOS. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with BUPOS.com. Yeah, good advice. Okay, step six is uh, dominate diligence. Yes,
1: Yeah. You know, what I was saying earlier, I never want to be... There's a lot of skepticism that can be brought to any business and operator. I oh, haven't been around that long. Oh, you're young. Oh, you don't really have the team. Oh, you don't have... Whatever, there's a lot of reasons, <laughs> excuses that capital providers will make they're at the end of the day scaredy cats scared of losing money and making bad investments you should dominate diligence but fully within your control to show wow they have they have their shit together they can produce anything that we ask them to produce and in, in high quality in a reasonable amount of time. And of course, push back on unreasonable, never-ending requests. Be like, hey, like, I don't have time to just have a business run, not just respond to the spoke request from you, potential capital partner. But this is just where, and this can be years of prep, right? We started Bigfoot five years ago uh, and we've raised money along the way, but I firmly believe that you should be trying to build systems process, uh, systems of record, data, what have you, into your business from the get-go, such that you're positioned to dominate when you decide that it is time to run a process like this.
0: Okay, and then uh, step seven and eight. We can we can talk about those together. As I guess is like yeah. seven is document, and then eight is close and, and fund.
1: Yeah, totally. And the one thing about diligence, I mean, it's a process that a lot of people don't know about. Like, okay, we signed a term sheet, we're done. Generally, you know, oftentimes not the case. There is some diligence that varies after that. So that can be surprising, it can be daunting, it can be a first time experience. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but having your stuff together, that helps you satisfy those requests is the way to go. Document, close fund. I mean, these can also be all first-time experiences. So have some counsel. Have have like This is where having good counsel is very important because that deals die in docs, which is super frustrating for everyone. So I think having counsel that's done financing transactions of various sorts before and knows what is market, for instance, knows what to push on, Softly, that they may get, may not care about getting, and knows what to push on hard. That's really important because um, you probably don't necessarily know. Your counterparty, as the investor, has done a lot of these types of transactions. You want an attorney that also has because you probably haven't done as so, many. So that's important to really try to get through that process, that part of the process efficiently to get to that closed fund. Closed fund's easy. Then you've, you've got through docs, you're signing, <laughs> and you're getting wired money. And then the relationship kicks off thereafter.
0: Goes to the next phase. Okay, great. All right. So that gives us an eight-step process. That okay. If you're going to start fundraising, you don't need to spend you know equal amounts of time in each of these eight steps. But at least think about what the end-to-end process looks like. Have a plan for what you're going to do at each step, or where you feel some of the gaps or the weaknesses for you may be, and and how you can be better prepared there. And then once that process is in place then it's about going out there and, and working that. And that leads us on to the, the third mistake you talk about, which is going after the wrong audience.
1: Yeah, which kind of ties back into step one, ultimately, of the process, which has, at least in my view, eight phases. So if you mess up and don't prepare for phase one, you're probably not going to be great through the rest of the, of the process. So a lot of money out there, different formats, different objectives, very broad right? So you can't just say, oh, I'm going to go raise money. Okay. I'm going to go like find people that have money. You have to really be surgical and target in. And again, it's outbound. So be smart about your outbound, right? Don't just do dumb. Hey, we're going to send a thousand emails type. Type outbound and check that box. of Okay. Now we've sent a lot of emails. Great. That's not the way to go. So I said, you know, I say be a lion. Lions hunt, but they also sleep a lot. They're pretty dependent upon getting big deals to survive and they you know, fail have a pretty high failure rate in their hunts, and they're frigging lions. Like, <laughs> so yeah. that just comes back. They know what they hunt. They know when they hunt. They know how they hunt, and they have a process for how they hunt. That, and they still fail a lot. So I think, you know, I say, act like a lion. Like, take that approach, right? If you don't, you're probably gonna not be successful. Exhaust yourself. Give up. I think that's a, it's easy to give up in in the first few phases of that process. So don't delude yourself and think you're doing a good job when you're not, right? Commit to doing a good job. And, and that's really kind of the, the crux of that. Let's say you're a $2 million ARR SaaS company. Projecting to get to 5 million in the next couple of years. Okay. Those are the types of companies we like. Like, I should be on your list. Let's talk. And if we do have a conversation, I'm like, who else are you talking to? And say, oh, we're talking to private equity funds. And, oh, okay. Which ones are you talking to? Or show me your list. If I look at that and I see PE funds that invest in manufacturing companies, I'm like, what? What are you, what are you doing? Why are you talking to? Them? Oh, I know someone who works there. He's a VP there. They're thinking about getting into software. Okay. Well, it looks like they invest in companies that have like, 10 million bucks in EBITDA. Are you profitable? I'm guessing you don't have $10 million in EBITDA if you're $2 million in revenue. Yeah. yeah, and there's various, oh, we're talking to banks. It's like, okay, do you have venture backing? No. Do you have, are you cash flow positive? No. You're going to sign a personal guarantee? What's that? So I don't know. I mean, I'm happy to educate people, but I think there's a lot of self-education that can be done, even if it's your first time.
0: Yeah. So, th- I mean, that, that's an interesting e- example. And aside from the obvious issue of somebody like that wasting a lot of their own time going after investment avenues that, that are probably a really bad fit for them and are unlikely to play out. Why is it also an issue for other investors like you when you hear that they're doing that?
1: It's fine not to know everything and make mistakes. But I think it can co- compromise confidence. It, it just shows lack of experience. It shows that you haven't done your prep, again, you don't have to know everything. And maybe you have investors on your list where it's like, oh, okay, they shouldn't have been on there. Fine. Remove them. I mean, that's really it, right? It's like, man, this person is really just not, doesn't have a clue. Sometimes is what you can leave that call thinking. So I can either try to help them have a clue, or I can focus on the other people that have a clue and have more, we're going to actually be more helpful. Like, I'm not going to yeah. build your list for you and give you some thoughts and a few names, but you know, you're know, you going to, I think, point yourself in productive paths. That's what I tend to do. We're going to actually help and lean in and add value.
0: Yeah. It's really that. Building confidence, credibility, and then also not wasting your own time going after stuff that just isn't a good fit. Right. It's
1: building an ideal capital provider profile, if you want to call it another ICP.
0: Like,
1: You develop ICPs as you're in market with your product and sales efforts. I mean, it's a similar concept.
0: Okay. So the fourth mistake is having unrealistic expectations or Mm over-optimizing. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. For me, this is really around two things. Expectations around what? Expectations around how long this is going to take. Oh, it's not going to be that hard. My buddy just raised 10 million bucks and it took him like two weeks. Okay. Well, great for your buddy. And and maybe that'll happen for you. But I think you want to come into it prepared that that's not necessarily going to the case and i equate it to otherwise you're going to be disappointed and you may give up so come knowing that you're going to have to commit to something so don't be unreasonable in the commitment expectation is one there's a lot of hype out there these days valuations are really lofty they and that can be okay but it doesn't i think what's happened is a lot of those valuation expectations as well have filtered down to companies that okay we're 10 to 25x top line okay doing million five and Maybe, maybe not, right? Or even on the debt side, well, my mortgage is 3%. This loan to my company that's burning cash and kind of subscale at revenue may or may not, maybe bootstrap should be the same. Okay, no, not really. Here's why. <laughs> and that's a fine conversation to have as well. Time and then the, what you're going to get out of it from a terms standpoint are the, the two main things to speak to there. I think the over-optimizing comes down to needling every single point and beating it to death. At some point you just you take a deal. Of course you try to get the best you can get and negotiate, but I think that wears people out. I know it does. And at some point it comes back to, man, if this is the case, and I've probably been this guy should negotiate hard and try to get the best you can at the term sheet stage because that's the time for it. Uh, it's less so the time for it after that, when you're in diligence to final docs, that kind of leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. Mutually, if the operator's doing it or if the capital provider's doing it, kind of like, wait a second, it's not what I, it's not what I thought we were doing here, That we signed up for. So that, you know, that can just be a bad thing to do, to try to over-optimize for every single thing. It's probably not the right way to go. So pick what really matters. Pick what matters for you from an economic standpoint. Work with your counsel to pick what matters in the documentation. Sure, get as much as you can, but don't go round after round after round after round after round.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then finally, the fifth mistake is not removing friction.
1: Yeah, I think this yeah it's somewhat synonymous with over-optimizing. And I think a lot of, a lot of people that run software companies are engineers. And, oh my gosh, whatever. Let me, let me think about how I, what data room do I need? What? Okay, I'm going to use DocSend. Those types. Of things. How do you get information to people? Don't overcomplicate that. Use, use Drive. Send it via email, whatever. Okay, uh, I want to see your deck. I'll go through Docs. And now I got to give you my email. Like that's that's just friction, right? Just attach it to an email, please. Oh, NDA. Okay, yeah, I understand NDAs, and let's not overly negotiate that. We sign a lot of NDAs. Here's our form MNDA, right? Sure. Let me know if anything, but it's pretty market and it's been signed by hundreds hundreds of companies at this point, vetted by many lawyers. Like let's just let's go. Right. Um, so that, those are just, those are unnecessary type friction and just waste of time. And I can't tell you how many messages I see. I went through Techstars with a previous company of mine. And I see in Slack and a data room show you. Oh, okay, should I use? And it's just like, it doesn't really matter. Like, <laughs> put it in a we use Google, put it in Google Drive, right? Everyone diligence processes to raise millions and millions of dollars using Google Drive and zip files. Like, it's fine. So there's that information flow friction. Then there's kind of friction around around your round. Part of that can be how you size your round. There's like such thing as tween you know, a tweener round size. I think that's become readily apparent to me at least. Okay, you're you raising a million dollars? Are you raising $7 million. And it's even, who are you talking to? Now, these days, there's a lot of VCs that don't want to write less than a $5, $10 million check. And we'll try to force that on companies, right? That happens a lot. There's a lot of angel groups that can write $500,000 checks. So if you're raising a $2 million round, it can put you in a, in a kind of tweener phase. And that can compromise. Well, I'm talking to these VCs who want to say I should raise a $7 million round. And I'm talking to these angels who say it should be a $1 million round. What do you think it should be? And, and make a case for that, a clear case, um, which will help your target. And Then there's just the structural things like don't overcomplicate your structure. Yeah. Is it a safe? Is it a convertible? Is it a price round? Why is it one of those? And understand that certain investors have their own sensitivities to structure. So if you get if you get an investor excited and committed, maybe show some flex on structure. Maybe they hate notes. Maybe they hate safes for whatever reason. But if they're going to put a couple million bucks into your company, okay, maybe show some flex there. Don't let that be the reason it doesn't happen. So you know, it's just things like that. again, you're selling. And so I think removing friction from any sales process, making it easy for people to get information, make decisions and say yes is important.
0: Okay, awesome. So just to recap the the five mistakes we we talked about and you described this as like five surefire ways to fumble through. Number one is conducting the casual raise. Two is shooting from the hip. Three, going after the wrong audience. Four, having unrealistic expectations or over-optimizing. And then five, not removing friction and just keep things simple and, and moving. So that's great. Now, you also mentioned that people could go and download a guide with more information, kind of examples of how to do outreach emails and things like that. How can people get hold of that?
1: Yeah, it's on our, it's on our blog. So it's bigfootcap.com slash blog. It's currently sitting up there at the top. I think it's a living green thing. We'll keep adding some chapters too as we, as we keep doing this stuff.
0: Okay. Sounds good. So if people want to learn more, as you just said, they can also go, just go to bigfootcap.com, learn more about Bigfoot. And if uh, folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: bparks at bigfootcap.com or click a button on our website that says, let's talk. And that goes to me. (laughs) So pretty easy. I don't really do a whole lot on Twitter. So send me a LinkedIn message, email me up on my calendar.
0: Sweet. Okay. Well, I'm just, let's just wrap up with the lightning rounds. So seven quick fire questions for you. Ready to roll? Let's do it. All right. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
1: I, I think for me and what's played into my own career is just is be authentic. Don't try to be someone you're not, which I think a lot of people feel pre- pressure to. And I know I have previously done that and and not been happy or successful. So I think as I've aged a little bit, I gained some confidence and experience. I think being authentic and true to yourself and portraying that to others is, is a benefit in, in business.
0: What book would you recommend to our audience, and why? Can I do a couple? Sure. They're not—they're not business books. I hope that's okay.
1: One is nonfiction. It's a very good biography by Ron Chernow of Grant, Ulysses S. Grant. who was, you know, general that turned into a president. So I, I devoured it. It was just amazing storytelling set in the Civil War period. So you get a lot of details around the Civil War into his kind of presidency while talking about his flaws. So it's kind of a really good character and time period piece. that that I really enjoyed. On the fiction front, you know, a wildly hilarious book I've always loved and read multiple times is The Confederacy of Dunces. So if anyone's ever read that, it's hilarious. The protagonist is one of the most absurd people I've ever come across and it's set in New Orleans, which is an awesome city.
0: Two very unique recommendations. (laughs) What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur?
1: To me, it's a bit of a chameleon. And when I say that, I mean, you're uh, not in a bad... Because I think they're going to have a negative connotation. But I think it's you're adaptable, basically. You're able to adapt to different situations, again, in an authentic way. So, I think part of the commitment, you blend in, penetrate different audiences uh, across the business, capital, selling, what have you, building a team and, and adjust, even if you're not an extreme extrovert or whatever. So, I think it's that adaptability.
0: What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit?
1: Man, I throw on Brain FM. I don't know if anyone who listens uses that, but I recommend it. It's like deep brainwave music, getting the brain going. So, I put it on Focus Infinity and Crank.
0: Yeah, I, I've used that before. It's pretty good. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time?
1: The mo- I'll tell you the most recent one that I'm probably not going to pursue, but I still think it's a good idea. I call it port to play So my wife and I have two kids under the age of two and a half. We occasionally dream about actually getting out and going to a brewery or something of that nature. And we don't have any family in town. So port play is a concept that basically has a pop-up playground. Think like a food truck at a brewery that is you know operated by 1099 contractors or what have you. That you can put your kids in for an hour or two for 20 bucks and know that they're there in a contained environment and they can play. And that's the idea. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Yeah, I think sometimes just likes the simple ideas are the best. Yeah, it's low <laughs>
1: capex. It's like, hey, brewery, do you want Parents to spend more time here and buy two, three beers instead of one. As the kids are going crazy, but more to play.
0: There you go. So, Brian's not going to work on that. So, if you want to run with that idea and you're listening to this, go for it. Yeah. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I was the youngest black belt
1: in Memphis in Taekwondo back in like the 80s. I it was like six or seven. I got written up in the paper and then I quit like two years later because I was burned out, <laughs> which, I, which in hindsight, of course, I wish I hadn't done, but. I think it was pretty cool that I was the youngest in a yeah. fairly sizable city. Nice. Uh, yeah.
0: And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: Soccer. I love to sport soccer. love to play soccer. pre pandemic haven't played in a while, unfortunately. Crystal Palace Football Club in the Premier League. If you don't have a team, uh, root for them. South London, gritty, <gasps> uh, Not oligarch type money. So, Crystal Palace,
0: baby. Nice. Yeah, definitely a gritty part of London.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Cool. All right. Great. Well, Brian, thank you for, for joining me and going through those, those mistakes and helping us sort of map out a process that founders can use when they're thinking about fundraising. If people want to go and grab the guide or you want to learn more about Bigfoot Capital, just go to bigfootcap.com. So thanks again. And yeah, I wish you and the team the best of success.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Omar. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having Cheers. me.
0: Cheers. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? JotForm Tables is a solution you've been looking for. JotForm Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and JotForm Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your JotForm forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But JotForm Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative. With conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity